Please stand with me as we read God's Word. And if you'd like to follow along, today we're going to read from Acts 15, 1 through 11. And I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversations of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our Father nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Please be seated. Thank you, Chris, uh, for reading scripture this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you can uh, stay there in Acts chapter 15. Uh, you can place a bookmark there and then head over as well to Galatians uh, chapter number one. Uh, Galatians chapter number one, we're uh, continuing our walk through this book. And uh, today, uh, the passage that we read will come into play uh, as we study the verses over here uh, in Galatians. We're going to start in Galatians, then we'll head back over to Acts 15 uh, and then come back over to Galatians. <clears throat> There's a famous parable that's been told over the centuries over in India and in other surrounding uh, countries. The parable is called The Blind Men and the Elephant. Uh, maybe you've heard of it before. It goes something along these lines. Uh, it says, a group of six blind men were visiting a raja and they encountered an elephant. Being blind, they all started feeling around the elephant trying to make out what it was. The first blind man felt the side of the elephant, and he said, how smooth this elephant is like a wall. The second blind man touched the trunk of the elephant and said, how round this elephant is like a snake. The third blind man touched the trunk of the, uh, excuse me, the tusk of the elephant and said, how sharp the elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man touched the leg of the elephant and said, how tall the elephant is like a tree. The fifth one touched the ear of the elephant and said, how wide the elephant is like a fan. And finally, the sixth one touched the tail of the elephant and said, how thin the elephant is like a rope. And an argument ensued so that each blind man, thinking that his own perception of the elephant was the correct one, 
And so the Raja, awakened by the commotion, called out from the balcony, the elephant is a big animal, and each of you touched only one part of this, so you must put all the parts together to find out what the elephant is like. So enlightened by the Raja's wisdom, the blind man reached an agreement. Each one of us knows only a part. In order to find out the whole truth, we must put all the parts together. And so the idea behind that parable was to be used whenever there was disagreements about something in order to say, hey, we only have part of the truth and therefore we should be understanding to listen to others so that we, the whole truth can be determined. Unfortunately, that parable was used to describe religions of the world. That all the different religions were kind of represented by the blind men and that each religion, if you will, only had a part of the whole truth. And that all of us should come together and study one another and study each one to ascertain what the, the complete truth is. And the idea that, hey, not a single religion has the whole truth. That we need all of the religions if we're going to grasp the truth about what God or who God is and with the spiritual reality. And their idea was that the elephant was a representation of God, and so each one brings its own part. Now, maybe you've heard that parable before, and it might make some sense to you. However, I say there is a major fault with that particular view of religions. See, the story is told from the viewpoint of the Raja, if you will, who is not blind, but can see the blind men as they are trying to grasp this idea of an elephant. And they're only getting a part of it. And see, if you look at it and you say, well, if, it's, if, if the king was blind, the story doesn't work. See, in connection with religions, how could you know that each blind man only has a part of the elephant? Unless you claim that I can see the whole elephant. Or how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior knowledge of spiritual reality? It also ends with the Raja, who can see, explaining the reality of the elephant. See, the blind men need some sort of revelation in order to receive the truth. And see, the reason that that illustration doesn't work, because Christians would say that the elephant, which is a metaphor for God, can speak. Because he said, God has revealed himself. The claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by feeling around in the dark, but that the discovery is through God's own self-disclosure to us. He's not passive. He's not silent. He doesn't leave us to guess about his nature. He has revealed himself to us, and he's told us what he's like. Now, what does an elephant and blind guys have to do with our passage today? Well, this morning, as we continue to work through this letter to Galatians, we're studying a passage where it's important to understand the truth about what we believe. See, Paul has opened his letter and now almost immediately launches into some strong words about what the Galatians were doing and what the end result of that would be. And so Paul wants his readers to be absolutely certain and to absolutely know the truth that there is no other gospel when it comes to their faith. That faith in Jesus is not one part of reality, it is the only reality. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I pray today that you would open our hearts, that you would help us to see the truth of God's word, that you would let us see in Galatians, Lord, that there is no other gospel, that there is salvation and no one else 
other than through faith uh, in Jesus Christ. Bless us today, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading a few moments ago was from the book of Acts because I did want to kind of set the context of what's going on here from Paul's words here in Galatians. If you're there in Galatians chapter 1, uh, we're going to be reading verses 6 down through verse 10. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not there, there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So last week we introduced the, the, the first five verses to Galatians, uh, and someone suggested I should preach the same sermon today because it's Groundhog Day, and I should just <laughs> keep going. But I'm not. I'm moving on, okay? Last week we saw the introduction to the book of Galatians, and uh, in the, each one of Paul's letters, he always, usually he starts the same way. He says, Paul, an apostle or a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, he'll say to the church that's in Ephesus or the church that's in Philippi or Colossae, or he'll mention the people he's writing to. And then we saw last week in verse 3, and pretty much in every one of his letters, he starts this way, grace to you and peace, or grace and peace to you. Uh, he gives this statement of what the true reality is, that it is the grace of God that results in peace. And so he always starts this way. And then in most of his letters, after his introduction, he goes into some sort of encouragement or praise. He'll say things like, I thank God for you, or I'm constantly praying for you, or uh, he might have a doxology of praise, and thanks be to God for you and your ministry. However, not so with the Galatians. Like, he finishes his introduction in verse 5, and then in verse 6, there are no pleasantries here. I am astonished that you're turning away. He states his name. He states his audience. He tells what the gospel is. And then he goes right to the heart of the matter. And he says, you guys are deserting the true gospel. So the first thing I want to look at in verse 6 is what we call the Galatians desertion. The Galatians desertion. What are they doing? He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In our day and age, it is a very popular thing to say that you have your truth and I have my truth. That, that there is no absolute truth, if you will. Everyone just kind of stays in their own lane and we'll all get along. You accept me for what I believe and I'll accept you for what you believe. And you might hear statements like this that says, hey, listen, it, it doesn't really matter. All roads lead to heaven. And we're all kind of just kind of making our way towards God, if you will. So, you know, if you want to go the Buddha route or you want to go the Hindu route or the Muslim route or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon or whatever, that you, you, you still end up at God. It's just your own, you know, way to get there. 
And they'll say, hey, every religion is valid. And so if, you just, if you're just sincere and you just really practice your religion, then, then you're on the path towards God. That's a very popular view today. And it's so popular that if you're the kind of person that says no to that idea, if you're the kind of person that says no, I mean, truth is only this way, then people really get appalled at you. They're like, whoa, who are you? What kind of arrogant person would say that? Who are you to be so narrow-minded? What's interesting to me is that when you talk about the absolute truth, it is very narrow-minded. But is that a bad thing? I teach math, and when I teach math, and if you do it on an elementary level, if I say, hey, 2 plus 2 equals 4, I don't have a kid say, that's so narrow-minded. I think it should be 5. I'm just, we're just going to say I, I think it's 5. No, he wouldn't because he says, no, that's an absolute sta- a statement. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a fact. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, of course, I teach algebra, and the kids are like, why is there an X in this? I don't understand why you're putting letters into math. And I say, well, it's still narrow-minded. And see, even though that's a a narrow-minded thing, we wouldn't argue about it. But when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to uh, absolute truth about God and salvation, then people will say, that's too narrow-minded. There's truth. And I would go farther to say, God is truth. God's word is truth. Jesus prays uh, to his father in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Paul here in Galatians is going to say, hey, there's truth. This is the truth and there is no other. There's no other gospel. There's not a gospel for the Jews and and a gospel for the Islam. There's not a gospel for the Hindus. He's saying there is one gospel. And you either believe it or you don't. But the Galatians are deserting. And Paul says, I'm astonished by this. And notice what he says. You're so quickly deserting. Look at how burdened he says, I'm astonished. I'm so genuinely burdened by this. And, and I'm not saying that, that <clears throat> I'm not just saying, well, you know, this is a little thing. He goes, no, this is a, this is a huge deal. This is a serious thing, it, 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 if you will. It's similar to like a parent, you know, uh, when the, the, like the, the child is running out into the street. The parent sees the car and sees the child going out. The parent doesn't say, hey, um, just so you know, there might be a little, you're a great kid and all, you know, but there's possibly, a co- in that moment, no, he says, hey, stop, right? We teach our kids to respond because why? We see the danger, and if they're not careful, they're going to get hurt. Paul's not simply astonished at the false teachings. He's not surprised at the false teachings because, listen, there are false teachers in the world. What he's surprised is how quickly the Galatians are following it. Now, the word deserting and the word turning, and you see that, 
are very serious words in this writing. Turning carries the idea of, of, of transferring one's allegiance. It, it was used of soldiers in the army who go fight for the other side. Or of a politician who would transfer to the other political party. How quickly you guys have turned from the Chicago Bears to the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more serious than that, right? <laughs> of course, not every, never mind. <laughs> no, you're turning your allegiance. The Galatians are deserting because this is what they're doing. And we see this in Acts, and we'll, we'll study it more uh, in just a minute. They're going to this different gospel. And what we find is that the different gospel is that they're taking the good news of Jesus and they're trying to add something to it. Over in Acts, we saw that it was circumcision. And what they're saying is, hey, or the law, what they're saying is what you, you have to add to the grace of God. That there has to be something you have to do in order to truly be saved. And Paul's astonished at this. As a matter of fact, he has anguish in this. Look at what he says in Galatians 4. My little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed with you. There's this, this idea that this is not just Paul saying, well, you're all going to just give it up and leave. Okay, I'm just going to warn you that's going to happen. No, he says, I'm in anguish for you. Like, this is, this is not just, oh, well, a moment for Paul. He's saying, he's in a, oh, let me just slap your wrist. It's okay. No, it says he's in total agony over this. Which is why I think he launches out right at the beginning of the letter. And I ask the question, how do you feel when someone you know, someone you love, walks away from faith? Walks towards another religion? Does it cause you to agonize over them? Or are you just like, well, they're, it's their choice. Oh, well. This is a matter of life and death. And I would say it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. This is very serious. Now what happens? What is this desertion, this turning, what, is it, what, is it, what are they actually doing? Look at what it says. You are so quickly deserting him. See, when you turn from the gospel, you're, not, you're, uh, you're turning from God himself. You're, you're so quickly deserting him. You're not just turning away from an idea. You're not just turning away from a set of guidelines or principles. No, you're turning away from God. And you're turning away, as it says, and Christ who was given himself for your sins. And Paul says, I'm so amazed that the Galatians are turning from the source of all their grace. See, in society today, maybe you hear something like this. You know, I, I believe in, in, in Jesus. I, I just really am not interested in the Bible. And I would say statements like that reveal what many, that, that many people, they want to hold on to God, but they want to abandon the gospel. They, they want to know God, but they don't accept the idea of him punishing his son in our place. Basically, it comes to the heart of, they don't want to believe who they truly are in respect to God. And I say this is not a small 
error. This is not one of those, well, just agree to disagree kind of issues. Because when you turn from the gospel, you're turning from God himself. Secondly, when you turn from the gospel, you're turning from the grace of Christ. Notice what it says. Turning, uh, you're quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Whenever you see the idea of the grace of Christ, it's kind of a synonym for the gospel itself. And so this group of people that we saw last week, we called them, uh, some, some people call them the circumcision party. Some people call them Judaizers, okay? They believe that salvation was Jesus plus circumcision or the requirements of the law. And salvation isn't that. I mean, we, it's Jesus plus nothing. As a matter of fact, the first song we sang this morning was in Christ alone, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul's saying, hey, anyone who teaches something other than that, anyone who teaches something other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has turned to another team. They're on another side. They've deserted the truth, and now they're playing for the other team. Because, see, there's only two teams. There's the grace team, and there's the law, the works team. The team that says, hey, you have to earn it. You, you, it's not what Christ did for you. You've got to earn your way. In your bulletin, I put the quote from Sinclair Ferguson that says, The glory of the gospel is that God declared Christians to be rightly related to him in spite of their sin, solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness. But our greatest temptation and mistake is to try to smuggle character into the work of Christ. And we all feel this way at times. That, hey, it's just too easy. I have to do something. Like there's something in us. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense that Christ would love me this much. So, so I have to be good or I have to make sure that my good outweighs the bad or I have to live this certain way. There's no, it, it doesn't make sense that Christ would love me enough to just simply die for me. Like I, I, have to, I have to be good. And this is why I said last week that no one can come up with this idea of grace. No one can come up with this idea of the gospel on their own. Because we all have this self, self-awareness. So when you turn from the gospel, you turn from God. When you turn from the gospel, you turn from uh, the grace of Christ. Finally, when you turn from the gospel, you have nowhere else to go. Notice what he says. You've turned in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Do you see that? Hey, guys, you're turning to a different gospel. And, it, and, if you, and it, it's not in the Greek language, but I would imagine that, that if you could write it in today's, that Paul would be saying, you're turning to a different gospel gospel like you would use the air quotes you know like it's not really a gospel he says that there's there isn't another one there's only one and I did a little uh, studying here and I found it interesting that that he chooses very carefully words careful words he says that you're uh, turning to a different gospel the word different is the Greek word hetero Uh, it's where we get heterosexual Okay, it means of a different nature. Okay, he's saying that the Galatians are turning 
to a hetero, <coughs> excuse me, hetero gospel, a gospel of a different nature. Then he says, not that there is another one, not that there is another gospel. The word another is the Greek word alos, which means of the same nature. He says, there isn't another gospel of a same nature. There aren't different kinds of the same gospel. There's only one. Most likely, the false teachers were probably claiming that their gospel was the same. You know, we're the same as Paul, for the most part. Yeah, Jesus died for your sins. I mean, we're not saying less than Paul is. We're, we're just saying... You know, uh, we're, 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 we're just saying a little more than what Paul's saying. We're not really that different than Paul. To which Paul is responding, uh, yeah, we are. We are completely different. We are totally different. And I don't think, if you would, uh, I don't think this idea is a first century church idea. I, I don't think that we are looking back and saying, boy, those horrible first century Christians. Like, I'm so glad we don't have to deal with that today. I hope you're not saying that because we still have people today who want to uh, add something to the gospel. They, 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 you have to do something in order to be saved. And that's, that permeates religions of today. Mormons claim that they believe that Jesus died for your sins. But when you get under the hood and you start studying that they're really stating in order to truly be saved, you have to do this and have to do that and have to do this and have to do that. As a matter of fact, every other world religion teaches you have to do something. And see, this is where Christianity gets very exclusive. This is where people start saying you're very narrow-minded. See, if, if I asked you, can you go to heaven without believing in Jesus? Would you say? I hope no. <laughs> I was reading this week about a pastor who asked that question. It was a church in the South. And I don't, don't fuss about the South, okay? It was the Bible Belt. <laughs> he asked that question of his church. And he was astonished that 78% believed that there was another means to get to heaven. 78%. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the truth. One final thing about desertion. Do you, the, the word deserting there, do you notice it says so quickly deserting? It's not a, it's done, you're, you're finished, there's no hope for you. It's still in a very present tense form. Meaning that Paul's saying, hey, listen, you're not too far gone. You're doing this, but I don't want you to do this. You're not hopeless. And Paul's saying there's still a chance, which is what this whole letter is going to be about. There's still a chance for you to believe in the true gospel. Now, where did this other gospel come from? Keep reading in verse 7. He says, not that there is another one. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, you have your finger there back in Acts chapter 15. I want you to uh, flip back there because we need to understand what is this that they're talking about, this other gospel. Acts chapter 15, <clears throat> we have Paul 
and Barnabas. And uh, in the first chapters 13 and 14, we have Paul and Barnabas who are they're out of their first missionary journey. Last week we saw verse 13 where they chose Paul and Barnabas to go out on a missionary journey. And in 13 and 14, you have their, their, the story of them going out and starting these different churches uh, through the Galatian region. Now, at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 14, uh, you can look at verse 24. Uh, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. Okay, that's just a verse telling where they went, and you can study on a map where those locations are. But the, uh, the idea is they got back to Antioch. Antioch is not the place here in Illinois. Antioch is the, the place over in the Middle East where the church officially really began. Like it talk, They were first called Christians at, at Antioch. Uh, and so he gets back there, and this is what happens. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this group comes in, Judaizers, they come in and they start saying, hey, listen, I understand that you believe in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and how, how he died for you, but unless you follow the law, unless you are circumcised, you can't truly be saved. Oh, thank you. Now look at verse 5. So uh, Paul and Barnabas have a discussion with them. Then they decide we're going to go uh, to the elders and we're going to go to uh, uh, Jerusalem and we're going to meet and figure out what, what to do about this. Look at verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, this is that circumcision party, rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now they decide, all right, this is the big issue. We need to figure out what to do here. And so in verse 6 and continuing on, they, they gather in Jerusalem and form what we now call the Jerusalem Council. And I love who speaks here. Can I just say I love who speaks here? Because it's Peter. Some people have argued Peter and Paul were two different Gospels. And I'm like, no, they're not, because look at what Peter says. Peter stands up and says, brothers, I'm in verse 7, you know, in early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the Gospel and what? Believe. Skip down to verse 11. But we what? believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will see Peter gets up and he says hey listen guys do you understand that God is using us to spread the gospel and actually he refers to a story back in a few chapters where he he saw he met with a guy named Cornelius who was a Gentile and we have the famous story of of Peter seeing the bed sheet with the animals and God saying hey what I have called clean you don't call unclean, showing the picture that the gospel is not just the Jews, but it's all of them. Because he says even in verse uh, 9, verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. It's the same gospel. It's the same it's not, hey, you have to believe and then you have to follow all the law. He's saying, no, no, it's a belief in the faith. It's having faith in what Christ did for you. The grace of the Lord Jesus. 
Now look what he says in verse 10. Now therefore, Peter's talking. Why there? Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The yoke there is the idea of the law. The weight of the law. That, that no one can follow that. Gentiles are saved just as the Jews and any person who comes. And so as, if you can read on in chapter 15, what you find is they write a letter then to those Gentile believers. Uh, and they say, hey, this is, what, this is what we believe. You can look down in verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Like he's, they said, hey, we, we understand that there are people who say they're from us who are saying this, but listen, they're really troubling your hearts. Now, back over to Galatians 1. Notice, Paul says the same thing. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. Trouble you. See, false teachers create confusion and division. The word trouble, the word trouble literally means agitate or unsettle. My wife and I just bought a washing machine uh, a couple months ago, and we had two options. One of them had an agitator. You guys know what that is? It's that little spiral thing in the middle. And this one didn't. It had like this little lump in the bottom. And we were like, well, what? how does this one work? As, oh, well, that one must be. Oh, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't. I'm like, we'll take the agitator one. You know? Because part of me is still a kid. I like watching, you know. The, uh, the spinning clothes. The word trouble literally means to unsettle, to stir up, to agitate. These false teachers are saying, you know, Paul's a good guy. He just didn't get it all right. You, you, you have to do more than this. See, they create, they create confusion, division. Then it says... You want to distort the gospel of Christ. The word distort means to radically transform the character of something. It, it denotes this radical change. It's kind of like uh, turning water into wine or uh, fresh water into salt or daylight into darkness. And really at its heart is this idea of reversing the gospel. Jeremy said, uh, the, the theologian Jeremy said, it means to set behind what is in front and putting what is in front behind. And that's exactly what the false teachers are trying to do. Let me explain. Over in Ephesians, Paul writes this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We all know this verse. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice, you're saved by grace alone, followed by you're created for good works. In that order. You're not you don't receive grace after you have worked for salvation. That would be a reversal of the gospel. 
And so if a person comes along and says, hey, I'm going to do enough good things in order to be right with God, then I'm going to merit his grace and I'm going to be saved. And I would say he has distorted the gospel because if you work for it, it's no longer grace. There's no work that you can do that will merit you the way to heaven. Yeah, but pastor, I have a friend, my neighbor, family member, co-worker. I mean, he's a Buddhist or, you know, she's a Mormon. And listen, they're really great people. And they're faithful. He's faithful to his family. He's a hard worker. He's polite. He's kind. Are you telling me that he's not going to heaven? Listen, I'm not denying that he's a good moral person. I'm not denying that. I'm denying the fact that good moral people can't get into heaven on their own. Being sincere about your morality doesn't get you into heaven. A person can be determined and dedicated to running down the track, but if he's going the wrong way, they don't give him a prize. Sincerity Sincerity doesn't give you a reward. To which I say, there are no participation trophies in life. So why are we giving them out? Sorry, I digress. (laughs) Now, this is what the false teachers are doing. They're distorting. Now look at verses 8 and 9. And we have Paul's response to this. And I called it the universal caution. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Two verses for Groundhog Day. It's the same thing, right? Let's just say it again. Let's just say it again. There you go, Chris. Groundhog Day. Did you notice Paul says the same thing twice? Why does he do that? Did he forget? Ah, what? No? Okay, I'm going to keep writing. Ah, oh, wait, I said it twice. Oh, it's fine. I think the purpose, whenever you see something more than once, there's a clue that this is important. And I think Paul is making sure his readers know, I'm not just flying off the handle here. I'm making sure that you hear every single word that I'm trying to say. And I want you to know that, that, that I'm emphasizing this and I want you to know the clarity of this so that you have no questions about it. If you hear anything contrary to the ones we preach to you, it's the wrong one. Actually, it says, let him be accursed. Those of you that may have grown up in the, in the Catholic churches, you might have heard the word anathema. You've heard that word before? That's the, actually a literal Greek word that's used here. That literally means you are condemned to hell. And I love the fact that Paul includes himself. Do you see that? But even if we, Paul included, if we depart from the gospel, we should be cursed or condemned. If he or another person in verse 8 says, or even if an angel appears. You know what's interesting? When you hear that, you're like, well, who would follow an angel? 
Hmm. You ever heard of a guy named Joseph Smith? (laughs) The founder of the Mormon church. You know what they believe? They believe in angel. Moroni, I call him Moroni, appears and gives this message. Hmm. He's saying every single one of us, when we hear the gospel preached, we should be asking, is the person preaching trying to smuggle in character? Is he trying to add something in order to be saved? And Paul's saying, if they do, they're a liar and they should be not allowed to speak. If I do this, and I stand before you, if I ever do this, Gage is like, then you should demand to those elders, you should say, remove him, and you should pray that my eyes be opened to the truth. I want to preach the truth of the Word of God. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? What's at stake? I would say, first of all, Christ's glory is at stake. See, when you go down the road of saying Jesus plus something, then what you're really saying is that Jesus' work is not good enough. It's got to be more than just that sacrifice. He didn't quite finish the job. And so, if, if, listen, if you or I assist in our salvation, then we deserve some glory, don't we? And if that's true, then, then we would sing more songs about ourselves. Not in Christ alone. Or on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We would be singing, baby, you're a firework. Christ's glory is at stake. Secondly, people's souls are at stake. If we miss the gospel, people won't be saved. And it loses its power. And it no longer grace. It becomes works and it pollutes everything. And Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 18 that if, if someone leads someone astray, if someone causes the little ones to believe in me to sin, if he, if he leads them astray, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh, Jesus, that's so harsh. That's the truth. People's souls are at stake. And I would say, thirdly, that the health of the church is at stake. Growing up in the church and hearing, you know, different things in all the different churches. I grew up in the South. There's like churches everywhere. And, and, and people would leave the church because they disagreed on the carpet color. Listen, we can disagree about kinds of things. I mean, apparently at some point people like pink. Because if you've been here any number of years, there were pink pews, there was pink walls. We liked pink. And if we, well, I disagree with the carpet color or, or I disagree with drums or robes or the end times or whatever, we can disagree on those things. We cannot debate the gospel. There is only one and we die for it. I'm not going to die for pink carpet. I'm not going to die for drums. I'm not going to die for drums. I'm not going to die for even a mode of baptism. But I would die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is at stake. This 
is an important thing. Finally, verse 10. Notice his ambition. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I believe this. I believe Paul writing here, I think, he, I think he's saying that, hey, I know all of what I just wrote. And I know it's not going to be popular. The whole world is not going to like that Christians stand this way. And that Christians say that this is the only way. The whole world doesn't like that. And, that, and through history you have seen the world stand against Christians and put them to death. Paul says, I'm trying to please God. And if you're afraid of people and what they think, Paul says you'll never be a good soldier for Christ. See, the world is pressing you today to lose your courage, to just, just give in, or to just be silent and just let the world kind of do their thing. Hey, we don't care if you believe it. Just don't push it on us. Just, you just do your thing and let us do our thing. They want you to meet them somewhere in between. And I would say there's no middle. One of the leaders at the Council of Nicaea named Athanasius, and we've talked about him before, he argued in a time for the biblical view of Jesus. At a time when, what was, when it was popular not to do so. He argued that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And, and in, in many ways, he stood against everyone or stood against most of the people. He stood alone on that issue. After one of the sessions, someone said to him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. To which he is said to have replied, then I'm against the whole world. Who are we trying to follow? The approval of man or of God? I close with this. On April 17th, 1517, you know what happened that day? Maybe you think you do. This is what really, April 17th, 1517, a little wagon pulled into Worms, Germany. A solitary figure got out and walked into the castle. In front of him was a group of some of the most prestigious people of that day, all waiting to hear what he had to say. Why? Because he had stood against the Roman Catholic Church. He stood up to defy what they were teaching. And so he stood there, Martin Luther. A voice comes from the crowd that says, Martin Luther, do you recant? He murmured. Speak up, Martin. You know what he said? He said, can I have some time to think about it? His voice trembling. He left and went back to his room. And that night he wrote out a prayer about his trembling heart. I encourage you to look it up. He wrote about how difficult it is to stand alone when the face of the world was saying you were wrong. So the next day, April 18th, 1517, he came back into town and he stood in front of that assembly. And they asked him again, do you recant? History tells us that with a very tremulous voice, 
and a bowed head, he said, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant. My conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against my conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. That is a man who understands there's no other gospel. And you believing that is never going to win you prizes here on earth. Paul says, I will stand against the false. I will stand for the truth. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe in the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there is no other. Let's pray. God, this morning, we are so thankful for testimonies of men and women down through history who have made the stand for the true gospel, the gospel that is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Lord, so many of us, we feel like we have to do something. We have to, we have to work our way to you. Lord, what a, what a beautiful testimony that you came to us, that you saved us. We didn't deserve it. But I love the verse, Lord, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, I don't know the hearts of each person here, but you do. And Lord, maybe we needed that encouragement today to continue on pushing for the truth of the gospel. God, perhaps someone here this morning is, is trying to add something to their faith. And I pray that, Lord, that they would understand that salvation is simply by grace. And now that we are Christians, Lord, I pray that now we was, would result in good works. It would result in a life change. That you would continue to work in us. We love you so much. We're so thankful that you loved us first. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.